You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Today on TopCast, we have a really special guest, somebody that's been in the pinball industry since the 1970s. He first started working in Atari and then moved to Williams and then later has designed games for Stern. Special guest. Special guest. Special guest. Special guest. So we're about to talk to Steve Ritchie. Steve's designed some of the, the best-selling pinball games of all times, such as Flash, Firepower, Black Knight, High Speed, F-14 Tomcat, Black Knight 2000, Terminator 2, High Speed 2 The Getaway, Star Trek Next Generation, El, uh, Terminator 3, Elvis, and of course, his latest effort, uh, Spider-Man. Okay, so we're going to give Steve Ritchie a call right now and have a little chat with him uh, here on TopCast. Hi, Clive. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, very well, actually. Steve, tell me about your first memories of pinball and when you were, you know, first first started playing. What I remember first in pinball was my dad taking me to uh, Playland at the beach in San Francisco. And uh, I guess I was about three or four years old. And, uh, you know, he stood me up on this, like, little bench thing that they had for little kids to stand on so that I could play the pinball. And uh, I do remember the pinball machines were all mounted on, like, a platform. They didn't have individual legs. They were all mounted up, up about two and a half feet up. And so... Uh, you couldn't shake them or anything. You could just play them. After that, I don't know, I would say three or four years went by, and my parents started bowling at this bowling alley called the Sea Bowl. And, um, you know, they would bring us, my, my sister and I, my brother wasn't born yet, and uh, it's like we would play, you know, they'd give us a dollar, which was a lot of money because pinballs are only a dime a play. And there were five balls, always five balls in California. Anyway... That's my first memories of pinball. How did you get involved in the pinball industry? You know, what was your first job? My first job in the industry was, well, it occurred when when I uh, I was in a rock and roll band. I got out of the Coast Guard. I dropped out of college after a while, and I just, uh, I, I, uh, I played in bands. I was a guitar player, and I was making hardly anything. I had met my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and uh, basically she was supporting me, except for whatever I could, you know, managed to, you know, put together from our, our band gigs and, you know, other other jobs that I tried to do, like spray painting addresses on curves and stuff like that. Anyway, I just got sick of being broke, so I walked into Atari one day and gave them my uh, resume, which, which wasn't much. I mean, I had some electronics training, and um, what an awesome place. I walked in, there were these beautiful young girls all over the place, just in the lobby. I couldn't even see... They had really loud rock music playing in stereo, <clears throat> and the reception said, receptionist said, hey, it's like that all over the factory. Wherever you stand, you get stereo. That's how the president likes it. So I ended up working at Atari, and uh, my first job there was uh, on the line, making harnesses. I knew how to make harnesses. I knew how to, you know, I knew electronics somewhat. Um, I, I was, I'm not going to say I was an electronics engineer, but I could make things work and fix things, and you know, like a technician, 
with a little more sense than that. I had a quite extensive schooling in the Coast Guard. It's not really what I wanted to do. Anyway, after I was there for a couple years, um, they decided to open up a pinball division, and I, uh, I was asked if I wanted to be part of it, and I said, sure. I guess I was there only a year. And, um, so they, you know, moved us to a different building. Steve, are you any good at guitar? I've been playing guitar since I was in high school myself. I was a pretty good guitar player. I did, I did you know, you know I, I was a rocker, and I studied it. I, you know, I wanted to learn how to play the guitar since I was 13. The day I heard the Beatles in 1963, it was the first, I want to hold your hand. That tune inspired me, and it's like, I had to become a guitar player. So I bought a chord book, and, you know, my father just sort of, uh, you know, he, he had a friend who had an electric guitar, and so he loaned it to me for a year, which is pretty awesome. And I learned how to play by reading books. And, uh, you know, I had a musical family. I had some training. I mean, I, I could read music and everything else in Hawaiian steel guitar about five years earlier, but I've forgotten all that since. And, uh, you know, I got in some pretty good bands, and I had a lot of fun, I would say that. And, yes, I still play. I wrote most of the tunes for Black Knight 2000. I wrote High Speed. Um, I didn't write any songs on this, but I did direct the music on Spider-Man, and uh, I'm pretty proud of it. It's like, you know, David Thiel wrote all the tunes, and he did a pretty nice job. So when you were at Atari first, you were just making video games? Yes, Atari was making strictly video games. They had Pong and a Barrel was going down the line. They had done Pong. They were just getting started with um, a couple of other games. A Tank was one of them. I was employee number 50 at Atari, so, you know, I was there after maybe, probably um, about six or seven months after they first put a Pong on test at a pub in Los Gatos, California. How did you get to design pinballs at Atari? Uh, my first pinball job there was um, prototype supervisor. It's like, I kind of... I saw to it that the prototypes got built, and I had to learn how to build them also. they <clears throat> Atari hired a couple guys from Chicago, from Bally and from Williams, and um, actually they both built themselves as designers, but I found out later that neither one of them were ever game designers. They were both mechanical engineers. And uh, anyway, they did the first designs. The first guy's name was Bob Jonasine. He built... Uh, um, the Atarians. I made the prototypes for them, but in the process of working with Bob, I did learn how to lay out and construct a pinball machine, you know, professionally. He did know how to do that. How was Airboard Avenger received by Atari? I know they only made like 350, but how was that compared to the other Atari games? After I was working with Bob Jonasy and the other guys there for about six months, I saw their designs and I thought, doesn't look that hard to me. I would like to try this. So uh, I I grabbed a piece of pinball wood and taped paper to it. You know, vellum, very strong paper. And uh, I took it home. And I, uh, I drew a game on my own time. And it took me about a year. I was still working along with, you know, the other guys there. Uh, you know, and they, they built, uh, I guess, two machines. And uh, the third one was mine. I, I Anyway, I made a machine, uh, a drawing, and I brought it into my boss, and he said, no, 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 you're not going to design games. I, I hired a guy with a, you know, a degree 
in uh, design, a master's degree in design, and, and he's the one who's going to be designing the pinwall machines. And that was uh, Gary Slater, and he, and he was he was good, but he did some totally symmetrical games and asymmetrical games, odd stuff. Um, I have to say, I, I liked Middle Earth. Anyway, uh, I didn't take no for an answer. I went to the big boss. It took about, I don't know, three or four months to make all this happen, but I went to Nolan Bushnell, and I asked him if I could uh, build this game. He looked at it, and he said, you did this at home? And I said, yeah. And he goes, build it up. We'll try it. And from that day on, I was a designer at uh, Atari. Uh, the game that I made was Airborne Avenger. That was my first machine there, which was pretty amateurish. But, you know, everyone's first game is probably a big steaming pile. Airborne Avenger was... It was received pretty well because it had some pretty cool things on it. It had shots, you know, instead of... Well, the layouts are kind of goofy. These guys... These guys had, you know, they, they took the wide-body pinball machine and spread everything out, okay? They moved the slingshots far apart. The difference between what they did and what I did is I tried to keep the pinball machine normal at first, which is 20 and a quarter. I designed a 20 and a quarter inch pinball machine on the wide board, uh, and then I let the outside shots, you know, be hit. Um, they weren't as important, but I never opened up the slingshots. I kept the slingshots the same as other Chicago games, and of course it played like more like a Chicago game. It wasn't such a mystery. Um, I mean, oh my God, this the second Atari game. It was called. Um, it had a beautiful like butterfly woman painted on the back glass. I can't think of the name of it. Time 2000. There it is. Okay, the big feature was a captured thumper bumper. Wow. No, a, a jet with rubber all the way around it. But the but the most ridiculous thing was, picture two normal drains with, you know, a left and a right flipper, you know, uh, and a center drain area. Well, this guy, Marty Rosenthal, took two sets of flippers and put, like, two lower ends of pinball machines side by side. And, and so they were like, you didn't know what to do. You hit the right flipper and both right flippers would flip, but one right flipper was so far to the left of the game that it confused your brain. The same thing with the left flipper. If the left flipper, one of the left flippers would be on the left side of the game, but the other one was on the right. Then they tried flipping both flippers at the same time with buttons. This is how naive people were there. Anyway, there was no good way. It was a bomb. How did you get your job at Williams? That is, how did you make your move from Atari to Williams? I worked at Atari and, and, and did fairly well. Airborne Avenger was interesting. Superman was, uh, you know, uh, that was... Well, Airborne Avenger was my first game with Eugene Jarvis, um, who was a great programmer and, uh, and a good friend. It's, you know, I, I think he's the best of the video programmers. And, and also, it's like... If, I, I probably had the most fun... Um, uh, of all time working on, on pinball machines with Eugene and this one with Lyme and Spider-Man and so you know these guys are like they're geniuses and also they're fun to work with and, and uh, it's hard to find a relationship which, that's give and take you know uh, uh, with, with a programmer and a game designer anyway Eugene and I were working on Superman and 
you know, we were experimenting with sound, and I, I kind of fooled around. You know, I'm a musician. I had this thing called an echoplex, so I, uh, I connected that up in the audio and sort of created a background sound, and we played the game and experienced it, and it was pretty cool. And Anyway, uh, at night we used to talk, because we'd work really late, too, like crazy, because we loved it. And I used to say, I wish somebody would call me, you know, somebody in Chicago, because I want to go to a real pinball company. I, I didn't want to really leave California, but I did want to go to a real pinball company that made real, regular pinball machines. And uh, uh, and and one day, this guy called me. It was the president of William, brand new president, Mike Straw. And uh, he said, well, I'd like to have you out, and you can... Um, no, we can talk. Um, anyway, I accepted the job, and, uh, you know, it's for, like, a little more than double my salary at Atari, plus moving expenses. Plus, this guy was really smart and charismatic, and uh, he was uh, he was definitely motivated, and he really loved pinball. And he knew something about it, I could tell, you know, through talking to him. So, um... I took the job, and I went from Atari to Williams. So did Williams actually call you, or did you call them? I, I got the call, and they, they asked me to go. I, I don't know how he heard. I'm not sure how Mike Stroll heard that we were messing with things, because Superman didn't come out until after I had finished the game at Williams, which is really interesting. And they took out the, the background sound. Well, we put it in at Flash, and it sold 20,000 machines, and smoked. It got the, you know the Williams all-time record at the time and for sales. Uh, and it did have a background sound that sounded a lot like some of the sounds you could make with an Echoplex. So Flash really put you on the map, made you the pinball rock star of sorts. How did that feel? Well, it felt great. Um, uh, to go to a new company and, and, and blow out their whole record of, uh, of sales, the, the first shot was like one in a million. And uh, But i got to tell you, I... I, I was motivated on the plane I drew Flash, and it was a figure eight with a cross shot, you know, a, a, a very simple game, but <clears throat> I had the name, I wanted to make it Flash, and I wanted really bright lights on it, and I invented the flash lamp at that time for this game. I uh, Actually, what I did was I go, look, this car, here's this car, okay, it's got a 12-volt system, look what happens when I hit hit the brakes, holy mackerel, is that light bright. How can we get a light that bright into a pinball machine and, you know, hit it and make it come up instantly? And they figured out that they had to preheat them. They had to have, you know, voltage going through them to keep the filament hot. And then we, then, then we would hit it with 25 volts or 24 volts instead of 12, uh, just for a brief moment. And uh, you got a very nice flash. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, after I finished flash, it was like I was on top of the world, but... I went on right right into the next game. I don't think I even waited a week or two when I started working on the next game because I was already talking about it with Eugene, and we were... Oh, and Eugene wasn't there for during Flash. Eugene came uh, about the time I started Firepower, which is wonderful. You know, it's like I asked him to come out the year before, but he just wasn't ready to do that. So he, uh, you know, he hung out at Atari, finished up Superman, uh, and then I, you know... I told him, I called him up again. I said, come on, man, I'm having a great time here. you got to come out. So, uh, you know, and Flash was a big hit. 
he had no reason not to come. And I told him I wanted to work with him again because the guy I did Flash with was like uh, a space case. It was really hard to work with. In the end, he like hated us all. He was he, he like turned on on all of us at at Williams and the group that time. You know the uh, and and took off. He was gone. And uh, anyway. Uh, that's the story of Flash, pretty much. How did the other game designers take you at Williams after Flash? What did you do different in your game designs that gave you the edge at Williams? Well, the other game designers were fine. That was, uh, there were there were four, I guess. There was, well, five if you count Steve Kordak. There was Steve Kordak, Chris Otis, um, there was Tony Kramer, Barry Osler, and myself. And uh, the other game designers were always nice about everything after Flash. And they, I, you know, I'm a weird guy. I have a lot of ideas. It's one of those things, you know. You, you kind of, you know, I, there's a lot of genes I didn't get, but I got, the, I got the design imagination thing. I feel lucky that I got it, you know. And it's like, I, if I'm happy... And I really like what I'm doing. This shit just pours out, and I, I you know, and, and I let it, and, I, and then I, then I try to perfect it, you know. And that's that's where it is for me. It's like I got lucky. Anyway, I was always nice to them, and they were nice to me. We joked around. Jeez, we had a great time. That's another story. Um, <clears throat> what I did in my design, different from the rest of the people, was. I looked at the ball's motion and uh, on other pinball machines, and I, I saw that shots did not start, not on all games, but on most games, shots did not start where the ball actually traveled. I know that sounds weird, but the curves on games before Flash and Firepower did not really they weren't they weren't made to intercept the ball on a trajectory gradually they were not made to do anything um smooth and pleasing i don't know you know it's like uh and that's not true of all games i don't want to say that what do i want to want to say i mean go ahead you can look at all the gottliebs with with the five jets in the middle and the the rubber and stuff there were shot games they were definitely skill games but they didn't make the ball flow in a pleasing manner where you felt like whoa I just made that shot and this feeling this feeling of whoa I just made this shot is really based on well I mean well a great way to explain the feeling and how it feels is to put together a nice billiard shot where you you know you you line up the cue ball and on you know and you, and you just you put the cue ball's contact point on the ball and it just feels wonderful when the ball you hit goes in the pocket without touching any sides you know at at 50 miles an hour you know it's like that anyway that's what i think i brought to pinball and and i as many other ideas you know as i had i you know i had on um, it's uh, it's a hard thing to describe, but I think that's enough. Who was the programmer for Flash? Programmer for Flash was Randy Pfeiffer, um, and he was a he was a pretty good programmer, but um, he 
I don't know. I think he had some problems at the time, and one day he just freaked out on all of us, including the president, and just said, you're all scum, and took off. But, eh, I think he was the scum. Was Stellar Wars a disappointment in that you only sold 5,500 units compared to Flash? Were the people at Williams disappointed in Stellar, Stellar Wars? Or were they ex- just expecting you to break sales records on every game you made? Stellar Wars wasn't fun for me to make. It was, uh, you know, I had done Flash in like seven months. That was when games were simpler. A simpler time, absolutely. Um, Stellar Wars was like, they begged me to do a wide body. So I did it. Um, and as it turned out, I mean, you know, you say sold only 5,500 5, units. Uh, boy, I'd love to sell 5,500 units of Spider-Man today. And compared to Flash, well, compared to Flash and compared to a lot of games, 5,500 units was the most sold of a wide body at that point. So, no, nobody was disappointed. Besides that, I think I put it together in six months. It was just, it just went. And uh, uh, it's really funny. When Stellar Wars came out, um, Superman also came out from Atari, another one of my games. And uh, Flash was still in the arcade. And these three games, this okay, this is the highlight, okay, of crazy, fat-headed, you know, I mean, I could have become a maniac at that point. Maybe I was, I don't know, but it's like my three games are trading places for number one, two, and three at all arcades across the United States. And it was an awesome time for me. I had three games out at once earning top money, and they would trade around. And Stellar Wars was often number one. They, I don't know why. I didn't love it. Um, anyway, it kind of did break the sales record for a wide body at the time. Firepower rocks. I mean, you know it. I know it. The world knows it. It was really the first game that had clear flow and clear rules. Uh, it was just the ultimate pinball package for the time. How did you do that? Firepower is one of my favorite games myself. I'm not going to lie. I love playing it. I mean, if I didn't love playing it, you wouldn't love it either. You know, it's like, it was it was so much fun to make. I uh, Okay, I had been away from my buddy, Eugene. I had to work with this, this weirdo. Okay, not a weirdo. I don't want to say that about him. A guy with problems, okay? That's that's fair. And, uh, and here's Eugene, and I, you know, I knew exactly how he worked, you know, and he worked like me, same work ethic, same... Same enthusiasm, same like, you know, he was single, so he could throw himself totally into it. Um, Anyway, we were both very motivated for firepower. And uh, I drew a game, and he, you know, he, uh, he had input on the play field, no question, you know. And I had input on the on the software, and, and this is where magic occurs, when when people allow each other and are also capable of commanding equal respect. It doesn't work if the respect is not equal. Uh, but if it's equal, wow. Um, it's uh, Firepower is like, uh, let's see, I don't know, I, I, uh, I invented lane change. <clears throat> on firepower. I asked Eugene if it was possible to move an unlit 
insert under the ball. And he said, what? And I go, you know, like, can we cycle through and put an unlit insert under the ball so you, you can get the one you want no matter where the ball is rolling? And uh, 20 minutes later, he had it working. And it was so cool. Um, Eugene Eugene went uh, absolutely insane with the code. I think there were only like three or four bytes left. He he did the world's first dancing display uh, display animation. He did uh, some, uh, well, G-Wave, the sound package he wrote during the game. And, uh, and he goes, you know, I just wrote this perfect little program to make a sound, and it doesn't sound good at all, but here, you type in this and that. I'll let you, go ahead, type in some crap. So I typed in some stuff. You know, he goes, pick a letter from one to eight. All right, or a number. Then he goes, pick any number after that, and, and then uh, and then give me a letter from A to F. Okay, great. So I, I punch it in, and it does this cool, awesome sound. Well, uh, Eugene, uh, you know, that sound program probably went through, I, I would say eight or nine machines utilized that sound program at Williams. Maybe more, maybe, maybe 10 or 12. Um, anyway, it, the relationship between Eugene and I was very synergistic and we were also very motivated. We wanted to be on top. We wanted to make the best games possible. We really respected Bally games because they were hot right then. Williams wasn't, you know. Flash was, you know, a flash in the pan. One good hit, is it going to happen again? Okay, we had to do that again. And and firepower was it. And uh, that's how it happened. On the lane change, why just one flipper to move the lamp insert and not both? I only wanted one flipper button because I didn't want to confuse people, okay? Even management, when they saw it and played it, they liked it, but they were afraid of change. And so was I a bit. I mean, if somebody would say, oh, people don't know how to work that, no one will ever figure that out, they said. So I simplified it and put it on the right flipper button because it was close to the, you know, most people are right-handed, okay? So... I put it on the right flipper, and it only moved one way. And I didn't really want it to move both ways because it was kind of confusing when you think about it. You're the first person that ever walks to lane, walks up to a game with lane change. You roll a ball down one lane. Now you have one light lit. You press the left flipper button, and it moves to the left. You press the white flipper button, and it moves to the right. What the hell is that about? When it only moved in one direction, it was clear what it did. And did you work with Larry DeMar in the early days? How did he compare it to Eugene? I did work with Larry DeMar, and Larry DeMar and I had some great success. You know, he's another brilliant programmer. Um, how did he compare to Eugene? Well, they're both two of the smartest individuals on the planet, okay? So how did he compare to Eugene? That's, you know... In, in what way? We're talking about, okay, I'll tell you, I'll tell you some differences. Eugene is like, hey man, uh, what do you think? And, uh, Larry would be like, tell me what you want! Uh, we're talking about, actually, working with Larry was me kind of working with me. Uh, we're both kind of similar. We, Let's call us intense. Let's call us uh, 
committed and uh, and also um, pretty stubborn. Uh, we'll hear things, though. I mean, eventually, I, I you know I can't help it. I, if you're going to have an open mind, you got to got to listen to everybody. You got to hear what they have to say, and then keep it or dump it as necessary. Well, Larry and I had a lot of fireworks, let's say, during our games, but we were also very successful. The first game was Black Knight, and uh, no, it was, it was the first you know multi-level game. I want to say though that. A lot of designers always talked about making a multi-level pinball, but they never did it. I'm the guy that just did it. Uh, I think any of them could have done it. Jim Batlow or uh, Steve Kirk, uh, you know, Steve Kordak, you know. Anybody could have done it that wanted to. Harry Williams, they, they could, he could have done it any time, you know. But nobody ever did it, so I went ahead and did it. And I thought, I don't know what I'm going to gain here, and I really didn't gain much, but... That's a real big gain from 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 Black Knight is the use of a ramp, and I think it was the start of you know I mean there were other games that had ramps in the past, but they came and went and they they didn't really they weren't in the flow of the ball. It was a uh, kind of a funky thing, and uh, I don't know why people didn't do more of it, but you know I kind of do know why. Uh, but that's another story. The management of each company, of Bally, of Gottlieb, of Williams, of Stern, is all different. And so are their philosophies. And they, they drive these philosophies at you, whether you like it or not. It's me. I'm a wise guy. I'm a wise-ass punk when I get to Williams. I'm also polite to everybody, and I, and I like them. But I'm going to stick my fingers in there, in my ears, because I know that what they did almost put them over the brink. In fact, Flash pulled them up by their bootstraps back into the mix, okay? I don't, I'm not bragging on myself. I'm just telling you how it was. And uh, and so I, this is how I felt. I felt like, fine, you know, I'll do great games. I'll do whatever I can. I'll work my ass off for you, but we're not going to fool each other about what we do and how it, how it happened or whatever. You know, I, I just, I'm, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to give you this, and I'll, I'll do the best I can. No, I, I might not always do, you know, spectacular, but I'm going to try every time. And I, I did that. I tried every time. Anyway, at Gottlieb, they had a completely different agenda. Ray Tanzer tells me that, holy shit, I mean, they, they, they would say, you can't have that in the game because so-and-so doesn't like it. Whoa, so-and-so doesn't like it. Let's say it was a great idea. It just didn't matter if so-and-so didn't like it. Oh, my God. Okay, so somebody else is doing my job for me, or Ray's job for him. You know, that's how to sink a company. And, hey, Gottlieb, my buddies, the class act, the Cadillac of the business, okay? Blah, 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 sunk to the bottom of the ocean because you didn't listen, because you didn't change with the times, because you didn't move on stuff, because you saw what competition was doing, and you didn't do anything about it. Anyway... That's another story. On your statement about Gottlieb, it was like you uh, had some issue with them. Can you explain a little more? I never had an issue with Gottlieb at all. I mean, my issue with them was, how could they let such a fine product die? They were magnificent once. They, they made the best and most reliable machine in the industry. It was called the Cadillac of the industry. And uh, I'll tell you, 
some of the early games at, at Gottlieb, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about early. I'm talking about early for me, which is like when I got started, 1974, 5, and, and from there on. You know, I knew about the old Gottliebs. They didn't appeal to me because there wasn't anything special about the dynamics of play, okay? Later on, a few guys did come up with dynamic play, but they didn't embellish it. They didn't try to compete with us, and I... I, I don't have any issue with anybody at Gottlieb. In fact, some of those guys, you know, I love talking to Gil Pollock. I could talk to him for hours, okay? Ray Tanzer is a sweetheart of a guy, just a great guy that I really like working with. He's, you know, he's he's just uh, and very talented, you know. And, uh, in fact, I almost went to work for them at one point. They, uh, we talked about a deal, but it just wasn't. You know, I'm really glad I didn't make the deal because I would have called management stodgy all through. Management is what caused Gottlieb to die, not the designers. On the game themes in the early days, did you pick the themes? Or, and how were they implemented in the game? Or were they just applied at the end and sort of tacked on? In terms of game themes, I picked every one. In fact, they expected me to come up with a theme, the layout of the game, an idea for the rules, some ideas. They expected uh, they expected sound development, and they expected uh, uh, some art direction, but not entirely. I, you know, uh, th- this was a tough time. Uh, well, I'll go into the art at another time. But uh, yes, we always pick the art or the uh, the theme for our game, and uh, and usually the name. Uh, let's see. I, well, you're asking me if, if a name ever got applied at the end and sort of tacked on. Actually, that's probably not true of any game because it has to have a name and a theme before it even starts to get drawn. So uh, that was always a requirement at Williams. At Stern, too. Gary's adamant about it. He wants... He wants, you know, he wants it to be clear exactly what the title of the game is before I even start drawing. And I tell him, you know, I don't have to know that immediately. I, I have some ideas I want to do, and I, I can make them apply to any theme pretty much, which is really true. It's like, um, it, it, it just works that way. That's how it is. Another big hit, of course, was Black Knight. Why that theme? Why multi-level? Black Knight was a hit and um it would have been a bigger hit but there's a big story here it's a long story uh but you asked me why that theme why that theme because because i think that the best pinball machines have a personality or several when they have a personality they speak to you they call out and they say come and kick my ass if you're so bad let's see you do it and, uh, you know, this this kind of thing, I like adversary pinball. There are other kinds of pinball I like, too, but that's probably my favorite one. Anyway, the Black Knight was obviously someone bad, and it sort of made the player the White Knight, the good guy. The good guy would defeat the bad guy. Um, multi-level was a, an opportunity to, um, I don't know, just another, you know, avenue of entertainment. Uh it it certainly stood out from any other pinball machine uh, prior, and I think people really liked shooting up the ramps, and I I made the ramps 
so that they fed into shots very nicely, and, where they were smooth. And um, uh, the only thing I would say that was a disappointment about Black Knight is we still had these low-powered flippers, 25 volts or something, or 35 volts, I don't know. We desperately wanted 50-volt flippers like they had at Bally, you know, and it's like they, they wouldn't do it for Black Knight, but uh, later on, you know, Mike Stroll saw the light, and he, you know, we went to 50-volt flippers. Um, I got along good with management, you know, at Williams. We, and they were good to us. Like, okay, Larry, Eugene, myself, all the designers, everyone in engineering, you know, every once in a while, Mike would take us all out, you know, like to a strip club or something. <gasps> there I said it, a strip club. Okay, anyway, or just out on the town, you know, he'd take everybody out to dinner. And and he was a great fun guy, and we we had a good time. We're all young punks too. He was a little older than us, you know. And he, but it, we we had a lot of fun, and and he made sure that we had fun. Um, it was a big happy family at Williams, and it, it it grew from there. But the core group was, uh, um, I don't know. We were. We were working to the same goal, absolutely, to try and make the best games we could, to try and be the number one pinball company, and uh, damned if we didn't do that. Are you saying that Black Knight could have been a much bigger sales hit? Please explain. Also explain how the Magnus save came about. Black Knight could have had double the sales nearly, and I'll tell you why. Um, okay, while I was working at Atari... I really didn't know how to draw or draft. I, I learned from this guy, Claude Fernandez, who was an excellent draftsman. Um, he also, you know, he had an affinity for mechanicals because he had drawn so many of them, you know, so many mechanical parts. Um, he was a handy guy to have around, and uh, after I went to uh, to Williams, he called one day and he said, is there any room for draftsmen? And I said... I don't know, Claude, but I'll find out. Anyway, I talked to Mike for a few minutes, and he said, is he good? And I said, he's very good. And so he said, all right, I'll hire him. So he hired Claude Fernandez, Mike Stroll, to Williams, moved him. I let Claude stay at my house until he could find an apartment. I think it took like two and a half months. My wife wasn't really happy about it, but, you know, he was a friend. He helped me out. Anyway, he started working as a draftsman at Williams and, and did fine. This is, I guess, around the end of Firepower. Um, at the very beginning, he started making a drawing of a game uh, on his own time. Uh, I don't remember the name of it. It might have been Blackout. And uh, actually, he was there before that. He was there a year before that, so... He came first. He came before Eugene even came. I would say at the end of Flash. Uh, anyway, while I was drawing Black Knight, he was being a draftsman and working on his own game. It was called Blackout. And uh, uh, it happened. It did okay. Um, well, one day Claude came in into the office and he said, I'm quitting today. Goodbye, Steve. He said goodbye to Mike Stroll and walked down the stairs and never said another word to us. Okay. Well, he went to Bally. Bally hired him, and uh, I didn't know this until we got to the AMOA show. 
unveiled Black Knight, the world's first two-level pinball machine, and across the way is Bally Booth, okay, and they're unveiling the world's second multi-level, you know, pinball machine, and the whole left side is virtually identical to everything I had on my drawing at the time that Claude left, unfortunately. So, basically, he copied the design and stole it, and they sold about... 8,000 machines, I think we sold 11, I don't know, it could have gone to like 20, 20,000 machines. MagnaSave was uh, a, uh, I'm not going to call it, uh, would I, well, I mean, I knew they had magnets at Stern, and uh, but I didn't like how they used them just to freeze the ball and stuff like this and for the uh, doodle bug assembly. So I, I wanted to try a magnet. Uh, to try and help the player save a ball before it could get, you know, down the train. And um, uh, so I, I kind of invented MagnaSave. I put a big pancake magnet right over the, the return lanes and activated it at the right time. It would actually suck a ball over to it, freeze the ball, and let it drop into the flipper return lanes. How it came about is, I told you, I'm an idea guy, I can't help it, I don't know just happened and uh, I'm glad ideas happen like that to me. Why Hyperball? What was the thinking there? Kind of shooting gun game. And how did you feel about the Bally Rapid Fire, which was nearly the same game at about the same time? Hyperball is a game that a guy makes okay, when he's like totally enamored with uh, Space Invaders and this huge onrush of video games, okay, that I enjoyed playing, okay, I'm not just a pinball game, throughout my career, even right now, okay, right now, not right now, but last night I played Fear, F-E-A-R, a, sh a video shooter that's awesome, okay, um, I, I have a PlayStation 2, I've got a, I've got an Xbox, I've got everything, okay, because I love video games. I got a lot of PC games. I play them. Um, Hyperball was a frustrated pinball guy seeing the market taper off because video was taking over. And there was Space Invaders, um, followed by a lot of, I mean, hey, I lost Eugene to video. Video was, uh, you know, Mike Stroll separated us. And he was smart to do so. Uh, Eugene, I did Black Knight, Eugene did Defender, and they were done in the same time frame, and it's just Williams was making a fortune. Uh, anyway, I was a frustrated video game designer. I wanted to make a video game, but they wouldn't let me. Wouldn't let me produce it, wouldn't let me work on it. Uh, I, I'm not a programmer, and I'm also not a video artist, so I couldn't have helped them directly, but I have produced video games, and you know, it, as long as you're very communicative, I think, uh, I think you know, anybody could, could carry through and make a game based on a vision with, a good, with good communication skills. Hyperball is, uh, well, it's a machine gun game, too. I mean, come on. Haven't you, haven't you wanted to fire a machine gun? I think most kids, most men, most guys, you know, it's like, I'm not talking about at Virginia Tech, okay? I never wanted to shoot anybody, but 
I did get to shoot machine guns while I was in the Coast Guard, and it is fun. I don't care what anybody says. It wouldn't be fun to kill somebody, but it was fun to shoot machine guns. So six balls a second, that part, I, I definitely was excited about getting it out to work. And Anyway, you asked about uh, about Bally Rapid Fire. I learned from a friend that the project's name was Project Xerox at Bally. That's what they called it. And basically, they they had seen, you know, um, Hyperball at a sh- at the AMOA show, and um, the truth was, it was very much a prototype. It needed four or five more months' work before we could release it, and so we went ahead and did that. Well, in those four or five months, Bally had produced um, uh, Rapid Fire. Um, it didn't play in the same way. I'm not sure it was as much fun, and I think they had as much they had more trouble than us making it work. How do I feel about it? Let's see I feel like, yeah, you know it's our fault for delaying so long to get it to market uh it's their fault for not doing something original, so everybody talks about hyperball as being a failure. Did you consider it a failure, even though you sold forty five hundred units? I don't think it was a failure um the last hundred were hard to sell, but and I, I think, you know, Williams lost some money at that point on the last hundred, no doubt. But I think they made, uh, at least broke even. No, they made money on, on the 4,500 units. So, uh, I don't know. It was an experiment. I don't consider it a failure. I think it was pretty fun. It really did great at, uh, you know, at big arcades, big family fun centers. Especially on the Jersey Shore, uh, um, most of the southern states. It did good on the West Coast. It could earn a lot of money. Most guys replaced the motor with a, uh, a really nice Bodine motor that, uh, that's a brand, Bodine, that would last forever and, and really make the thing pretty solid. We did sell a lot of plungers, though. They would mushroom, you know, that fat, rapid firing huge coil-driven uh, plunger that actually struck the ball would mushroom after a time. I don't think it was a failure. I'm sorry. So Space Shuttle came out about 1984, and it's not your game. It was a Barry game, Barry Osler. And a lot of people consider Space Shuttle the game that saved Williams' pinball. And then you came out, of course, with High Speed. Tell me about High Speed and the story behind it. I, I don't consider... Space Shuttle, the savior of Williams Pinball. I'm sorry, I don't. Uh, that story is built on hype by a few people who would like to turn things that way. The factory was dark after it was done. Um, it was a decent game, and I'm not taking anything away from that. As far as saving Williams Pinball, I don't think so. Um, Sorcerer did very well, uh, or good enough. I mean, at that time, again, you saw me make rapid fire. You saw me make a video-like pinball machine. Well, video trounced us, okay? Video killed us. And uh, there were a couple of games that we had made at the same time that that just didn't cut it. Uh, But operators wanted video games. They wanted them so bad. In 1982, okay, pinball was a tough sell, no doubt. And it became very tough until 1984. Uh, in 1984, the entire bottom fell out of the video market. 
and pinball was still dead. Now you're talking about the factory being dark, okay? And it was dark after Space Shuttle. Um, that's my thoughts about it. Also, it's disputed about who made the game, and I, I give credit to Perry Osler. Um, uh, he's responsible. He drew the game, okay? Other people, you know, barged in and, and tried to take it over and threw the theme on, which was handy. It's a name, though. To make a game, a designer has to work on the game, okay? A designer has to draw the game. A ga game can't belong to somebody who talks about the game, okay? It doesn't belong to anybody who talks about the game. It belongs to people who work on the game, who live the game, who is the father of the game, and, the, and the, you know, the programmer uh, of the game. I mean, it's I have trouble with any other uh, any other definition of who owns the game or how the game came about. I went back to California to start a video game company called uh, King Video Design, and uh, Mike Stroll, you know, financed it. I wanted to make a video game because video games were were king, and in '82 they really were. They were, you know, that was the pinnacle. Unfortunately. Two years later, I had finished a game called Devastator, which was the first 68,000 microprocessor uh, video game, and it was 3D. It was a space-flying game. It had a uh, an object-oriented system. We were the first people to use digitized camera images in color um, and applied them into the game. Uh, it didn't matter. When we finished our game... It was 1984. The hardware didn't work correctly when we first brought it back to Williams, and it was very tough to demonstrate the game working when it kept resetting. And I was bugging my partner constantly, please fix the hardware, make it not bug out. And uh, it didn't happen until three months later, unfortunately, when he found the bug, the problem in the hardware, which was really too late. By then, Williams had lost, I don't know, $18 million, I think it was. Uh, they had games uh, laying around like, uh, I can't remember the exact name of the game. It was a laser-based game. Uh, it was called oh, Space Something. Anyway, the video business fell through the floor. Uh, Mike Stroll didn't buy my game. He couldn't. He had just lost all this money, and... And nobody had any confidence in any video game at the time. And I'm not going to say that Devastator was a bad game. I'm just going to say that it's uh, it came out at the very worst possible time. Um, uh, it's, you know, a fact of life. Anyway, High Speed came about... Uh, while I was, you know, a, a working on this Devastator game, um, I bought a uh, Porsche 928, which is uh, an aluminum V8 powered sports car. Very nice. Uh, a lot of people didn't like it for how it looked, but I loved it. And it was uh, it was a great handling car um, and a great, uh, nice engine. Very quick. It could do like. 146 miles an hour top speed. I was driving it one day, uh, one morning after I'd had it for about four or five months, and uh, my partner Doug and I, the guy that screwed up the hardware, uh, we're going to make a trip from where I live near Sacramento down to San Jose. 
on Highway I-5 starting at 6 o'clock in the morning. When they get there, buy our parts, get back, you know, have dinner with our families. Quite a long drive. Anyway, I, uh, I had wanted to try the car out. Trying the car out means how fast will it go, Steve? So that's what I do. I open up the throttle. I mean, I stomp it. And, uh, and I, I do this because you know, it seems irresponsible, but at the time it wasn't. Uh, um, I, uh, very little traffic on I-5, four lanes in each direction, some tomato trucks, okay, in the far right lane that I passed. And it wasn't very traveled because it was brand new. And it went between Sacramento and San Jose, and at 6 o'clock in the morning there just wasn't much traffic. So I opened it up with no problems, like, uh, there weren't any obstacles, I didn't endanger anyone, that's what I'm saying here. Anyway, uh, I went over this uh, this hill, and then back down, and I see a highway patrolman coming the other way, No, and it was like uh, a Mustang with a, with black sides, you know, white top, white door, crystal clear, it was a highway, California highway patrolman, and um, he... Uh, he didn't, I slowed way down, like to 70 miles an hour, and, and then I went over another hill and went down, and I figured, okay, well, if he was going to come after me, he would have been after me by now, and he could have turned around in the median, but he didn't, and I, I thought, okay, fine, I'm just going to go again. Well, it turns out he did turn around in the median, and he, he called for, uh, you know, for backup. I guess he got me on radar or something and, and probably saw a piece of that, you know, that speed probably saw 80s or something that's what I thought at the time so anyway I didn't know all this so I just hauled ass again and uh, I, I got it up to 146 miles an hour and we were kind of thinking wow this is uh, this is really fast and it was easy to do and the car was super smooth at any speed it just didn't matter um, anyway like a fool I just kept doing it and uh, I, I probably drove 20 miles like that well uh, all of a sudden, from the opposite direction, on the other side of the median, you know, a sheriff's com car comes, you know, roaring up, and uh, he's probably going 100 miles an hour with his red light on. The instant he sees my car, he makes a U-turn in the median, and and uh, he pulls up behind me. He, he's not really behind me. He's just in the same lane, you know, a long way back. So I knew it was for me. And we're talking about the Sacramento Valley, which is flat as a pancake, okay? There's no place to hide, no side streets to get on. There's nothing. You're not going to get away from anybody out there. You know, in the city, you could get away from a cop. Uh, or in a hilly country, you could pull over and, or take any side road. Just no such thing in the Sacramento Valley. It's flat, and you can see for miles. And so I decided to pull over. And the guy told me, wait in the car. And I, I said, uh, what's going to happen? You know, and he goes, just wait in the car. So I, I just sat there and waited about three minutes, and then up roars the highway patrolman, you know, slams on the brakes, big cloud of dust, of course, because, you know, the, the side of the road is gravel and dust and dirt. So he makes this big, you know, dramatic cloud of dust, jumps out of the car, comes running over, and tries to pull me out the window of the car. And I just said, after, you know, after he tried to pull me out of the car, I go, look, I'm not a bad man. I'm willing to cooperate with you. Can I just open the door and get out? I don't have any guns, no drugs, nothing, okay? 
Uh, finally, he calmed down, and he said, Sir, get out of the car, sir. So I got out of the car. He throws me on the hood, puts handcuffs on me, and sticks me in the front seat of his car. Um, there's more to the story, but this is high speed. This is the story of high speed, exactly. You know, run the red light, get away from the cops, or don't. Um, uh, I don't know. I was totally motivated. I asked Mike if I could come back to Williams and make pinballs, and he said, sure, no problem, show up. So I did, and, uh, you know, it was all there for us. Red light on the top, uh, you know, siren, excitement. Um, it was just awesome. Uh, great theme. Larry was into it. Larry did a spectacular job on, on High Speed also. All right, we're going to take a break from talking with Steve Ritchie, the famous pinball designer, and we will be right back after this message. The Pin Game Journal is a proud sponsor of TopCast. It covers pinball like no other publication can. The Pin Game Journal is America's only pinball publication. Whether you're looking for new games or the classics, reports on industry shows or collector expos, insights on a game you want or features to help you fix the game you've got, Pin Game Journal's for you. Their website is at pingamejournal.com. All right, we're back with Steve Ritchie, the pinball designer. Talk to him some more about the games that he's worked on. So why didn't they have a Porsche 928 on the high-speed back glass? It looks more like a Lamborghini. Also, please tell me more about the high-speed story. Whatever happened with the cops on that? The reason why a 928 didn't appear on the high-speed back glass is because it wasn't as cool-looking as a Lamborghini. So we used a Lamborghini, and I don't know. I think it was a smart move. All right, you want to know what happened to cops? Jeez, you're going to make me tell the whole story. I don't know if you know this, first of all, but speedometers in those days only went to 85 miles an hour. The way we figured out, okay, there's always a way to figure out how fast you're going. And top here, if you know the gear ratio, okay, the final gear drive ratio of the car, you can figure out how fast you're going. Actually, you don't even need that, Okay. If at 3,000 RPM, you're doing 60 miles an hour, and 6,000 RPM, you're doing 120 miles an hour. There's just no question about it, okay, as long as you're in the same gear. So we were able to figure out that we were going 146 miles an hour, okay. The cops were all cracking up because the speedometer only went up to 85. They searched the, cop, the, the car thoroughly. Nine cop cars showed up at the scene, okay, and not just highway patrolmen, the sheriffs, Lodi, city police, they had to come out and see what was going on and see the guy, you know, that was going 146 miles an hour and pulled over for the cops to take him away. Um, it was like a circus, and I was, I spent the whole time in the front seat of the car, you know, strapped in with the seatbelt with handcuffs behind my back, trying to, you know, look, I, well, no problem, I looked in the rearview mirror, I saw what they were doing, the guy left me in the car, actually, I, I probably could have you know, I could have stolen his car. I think he left the keys in it. You know, this was another era, though. <coughs> anyway, I don't know how I would have driven, come to think of it, with my hands handcuffed on my back. Never mind that. Uh, finally, it's over. The cars start pulling away, and here comes Mr. Highway Patrolman. I think his, his name was Ted something. He comes back to the car. You know, he's already talked to my partner. Now my partner is driving my car, okay, because... You know, he had nothing to do with it. Uh, they questioned him. They searched him. They searched me. Um, 
we just weren't doing anything except for trying out a car on a freeway in the safest manner we could, but he really didn't have anything to do with it. I had all the guilt. So the cop car, the cop comes walking back to the, I should say, the California Highway Patrolman that put me in the car, came back to his car, sat down next to him, and he goes, What's that, what was that about, anyway? Something like that. And I go, I got the car about three or four months ago, and I wanted to try it out. I told him the truth. I, I told him, you know, I don't know if you, if you ever had a car like this, but I think if you had a car like this, being that you're a cop, and you, drive, you get to drive pretty nice stuff, you know, that eventually you would try it out somehow, some way. And he goes, the truth is, I would. That thing is awesome. And uh, and I said, well, it really is. And I, I, I wanted to try it out, and I, I thought I would pick the safest place and the, the best time to do it. And uh, I didn't endanger anyone else's life. Uh, you know, and, and when I finally, when I knew that you were after me or somebody was after me, I did pull over. I, you know, I hesitated for a moment because I wasn't sure if it was for me, but I did that. Uh, and I knew it was for me because I was going too fast. And But I'm going to tell you that the car was great, handled well, was safe to drive even at that speed. The brakes are magnificent. The car handles perfectly. My tires are brand new. They're Pirelli P7s. I mean... Everything was right. The weather was good. The pavement was great. No rain, no nothing. It was just the right day. So he goes, yeah, I guess if you're going to do that, it was the right day. And then he takes the handcuffs off me. And he goes, you want a cigarette? And I go, actually, I would. That'd be great. He starts talking to me, and I'm talking to him, you know, and he's like, he starts telling me about his Corvette, okay, and how he had it up to 150-something, okay, not at the drag strip either. He wouldn't say where he did it. But anyway, we got to talking, and, and uh, he goes, tell you what, when I get you to the courtroom and you're going to go straight into court, I mean, if you don't, you're going to go to jail. So you, you, it's actually your lucky day. You're just going to go right into court. There's, there's, there's an opportunity for you to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, you know, possibly, you know, walk out of here today. There's also a possibility you'll go to jail. So uh, we're just going to go to court. And I'll see what I can do for you. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, shit, this guy's going to see what he can do for me. Like, you know, but the truth is I wasn't running from him, and he knew that. Because I, you know, I was telling the truth. It was obvious. Um, so we go to court, and uh, the judge, you know, when it finally comes time for my case to come up, he goes, so, Mr. Ritchie, wow, 146 miles an hour. How do you plead? And I said, well... I was guilty, Your Honor. I was very polite, always. Um, I'm guilty. I did it. And he goes, well, why, sir, on earth would you do such a dangerous thing like this? And I said, sir, it was not dangerous. I, 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 this is a great car, made to do it. it great brakes, good tires. It was early in the morning. And uh, he goes, so how did you like it? And I said, I thought it was great, Your Honor but I won't do it again. And the whole courtroom cracked up, okay? They were laughing out loud. And that saved me. I was able to walk out of that courtroom with a $250 fine, um, drive, restricted driving for business only, and with a bad part, reckless driving on my record for seven years. But he knew that was there was no alcohol or drugs involved. He, he said that. He said, you can go, sir. Uh, 
I want you to slow down. And I said, sir, I'll never do that again, which is the biggest lie I ever told in my life, okay? Uh, and it's like, they let me go. That was it. I paid the money, and it was a company car. And any time I was in the company car, well, that was company business, so all driving I did was for business. That wasn't a restriction. So F-14 was your next game, another adversary-type thing, good versus bad. You sold like 14,000 of these. Again, Williams must have been loving you with those sales numbers. F-14 was another adversary game. General Yagoff, of course, was the uh, the bad guy. Um, you know, the player was a good guy, and you were battling uh, this this MiG pilot as an American and uh, in an F-14 Tomcat, you know, in the Navy. Um a fun game to do. My first, uh, actually, uh, we hired Ed Boone, who went on to do Mortal Kombat and lots of other games and become, you know, one of the great video game designers of all time. Um, and Ed was on our project, and he, you know, he was a gifted programmer from the first day, and he really loved working with Eugene because Eugene showed him, you know, how things go together in a game. He had his own ideas, too. But he learned a lot from Eugene, and he was a really quick study. And um, I ended up doing the game with Ed later on, too. But anyway, that's that's what I remember about F-14. Eugene, Eugene and I got along great during the game. We thought of, if, you know, hey, if, if one uh, rotating beacon on the top of a game is good, then three must be better. So we did the red, white, and blue, you know, patriotic, all-American thing. I got my brother's voice in there as uh, another American pilot so that we could have a rapport between two pilots fighting, you know, Russian guys. Uh, it did pretty well. That was the first, the first, only I called it a ball popper. Uh, I guess other people had kicked the ball straight up, but I made a staple device called a ball popper, and... You could put it on any game, and it would kick the ball straight up in the air. And I used it on almost every game since then. Because uh, it's a great device. Not every game, but lots. Um, that's all I have about F-14, except for I do remember going to New Orleans. That was the year of the New Orleans show. And uh, having a lot of fun. We partied hard in New Orleans, and uh, and we sold a lot of games. 14,400 or so, I think. Black Knight 2000, why did you do a remake of an older game or a recycled theme? Great game, sold pretty well, but why don't go down that path? Well, uh, Black Knight 2000, it's not really a remake. I wanted to go back to two-level again, but I also, I had a design in my head, and when you got down to it, the best theme for it was the Black Knight again. Plus, speech and our ability to play music had improved so much that I wanted to. Wow, uh, I wanted to make. I wanted to make the music for the game. I just felt it. I heard it all the time. I heard the, you know, I didn't. The only I didn't hear the bass line, but I, I wrote the chords for the main tune. I mean, maybe two years before we actually did the game. And then I started fooling around with some of the lead lines and and uh, and other tunes in it. Um, uh, I, there are very few tunes that I didn't write, but I want to say this. 
I, I wrote them. I played them on my guitar for Dan Ford and, and for uh, Brian Schmidt. And Brian Schmidt came up with a completely original and spectacular bass line for the main tune. You know, the bass line really made my tune much better. Okay, it was nothing before the bass line. Um, and then the great Dan Forden, okay, wow. Um, I asked him to, you know, I, I, I did give him my tunes, and he did them faithfully, but he also, uh, he just he just made some some great leads and, and stuff, and, and his voicing, okay, the, 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 the actual instruments were outstanding. Uh, and then we all went in the studio and started singing. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you got the power, you got the mind. Um, I was the voice of Black Knight. I, I love this character. I, I had heard so much of the Black Knight, you know, that, uh, and, and I was also kind of frustrated that we only sold, like, uh, you know, 12,000 of these things. It should have been 20 of the original Black Knight. That's what I think. That's what I feel in my heart. It would have been 20 if, if Claude hadn't stolen it from us. Uh, so I just, uh, I didn't think it was a bad idea. Plus, we had plenty of new ideas for this. I, I wanted, uh, um, you know, they had done a motorbike bank for Pinbot. The whole, you know, you, knock, you hit five targets and the whole thing drops down. Well, I wanted a motor three bank, you know, to block a smaller area. and uh, And so they made one for me. And so I have the first Moto 3 bank of any game. Uh, and that's up on the top to go to a third level, which is another thing that I wanted to do with Black, Black Knight 2000. I wanted to go one more. Our amps go to 11. Okay, well, it's like I wanted this to go to three, uh, three levels. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's the greatest musical collaboration uh, of any pinball machine of all time, I know. I know it sounds like I'm bragging, but the truth is, I'm bragging on a bunch of people, mostly Brian Schmidt and the great Dan Ford, and both of those guys are, are, are spectacular composers. And uh, I, I, I really miss working with them. Uh, uh, also, Black Knight 2000 kind of pushed the envelope. Uh, this playfield, uh, the upper playfield, lifts off, uh, lifts up so that you can clean the whole underside with a rag, and it's quite easy and you know, um, uh, Black Knight 2000 is is a special game to me because because Joe Jose helped me an awful lot with it. He really taught me some things about uh, drafting and uh, and design. And he was a good game designer and also a very good friend. I miss him so much. I I love Joe, and uh, I you know I I I cherish the memories of of working with him on that game and he was like he was he was pretty much the mechanical engineer on the game while he was also the mechanical engineering boss so um it was an awesome thing that he he still made time to uh, make devices for my game and also run mechanical engineering at the same time tell me about joe dillon joe dillon's a good guy he was he was a good guy he uh you know, he's a lot older than me. He, he was also uh, um, a smart guy, m much smarter than he came off to be. Um, he was a great salesman and the, and the biggest clown on earth. 
he would be a clown. He would he would put on anything and do anything, and uh, including being the Pope once at some you know some cool distributor you know distributor only uh, show at at some you know at the AMOA or ASI. He was funny. He was a great guy, a good friend. I asked him to be in my game uh, as the uh, you know the cop in uh, high speed. I miss him. I miss Joe Dillon. Roller games, aside from the theme and game show disaster, where actually the the show was canceled from TV before your game came out, how did you feel about the game? Well, after I finished roller games, um, I didn't really like it. I, uh, because it's it just like, it turned out to be a trashy TV show that went off the air, and now my game was affiliated with it, but when I actually played it, I actually I had fun, and uh, and I think it's okay. I think it's a pretty good game. Uh, it was a pretty game too. Uh, I like how it looked. I like the uh, golf tee magnet. Um, some interesting rules. It was fun to do the voice and the singing, and uh, I don't know. I I used to hate it a lot more than I do now. I I don't hate it anymore. Because I've I've gone back to play it a few times at friend's house and and it wasn't really a bad game. It actually played pretty good. And uh, so what about the theme? I guess you know nobody else. You know, if you weren't on the team, you did not experience the heartbreak that we did. So if you enjoy um, roller games, uh, certainly you're entitled to. It's, it's it's the stigma that's attached to the game for me that ever caused me problems. And like I said. It doesn't bother me anymore. I think it was a good game. Terminator 2 was an, an absolute amazing game that you did. How fun was that to make? T2 was a riot to make. We were both excited. That was Dwight and I. And uh, when, when we found out that, uh, that well, when I found out that there was going to be a Terminator 2, I freaked out. I, I begged for it and uh, because I thought that, you know, Terminator, the first one, was the best B movie ever made. I, you know, 300-and-something guys get killed by the Terminator. It's awesome. Uh, you know, it's like a landmark movie, and uh, for me anyway, science fiction, uh, you know, violence, pretty cool. Uh, good story. Anyway, when T2 happened, uh, we asked for it, and uh, we got it, and we got, uh, let's see, the artist and Dwight and I, got to go to uh, Jim Cameron Studios. It was Lightstorm Productions. That's it. And uh, and we got to sit and talk with James Cameron for three hours. And he had pinball ideas. And it was awesome. He uh, showed us um, everything he was doing on Terminator at that point. T2, I'm sorry. Uh, gave us a script. At the same time, we were making a video game, and so he sent dailies Everything that was filmed that day, and it would arrive the next day, and we would see it the next day. Uh, we ought to sign, you know, heavy non-disclosure agreements, but it worked out great. Uh, he sent us artifacts, like uh, the actual chip that they used in the movie. Um, a couple of Terminator skulls. Um, Stan Winston, you know, sculpted stuff. Uh, we had a great connection. It was just it was a great licensor. And uh, uh, he gave us the maximum freedom, and it was great to talk to James Cameron and 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 get his take 
uh, and just to meet him was kind of thrilling, you know. I mean, he wasn't the king of the world then, but he was uh, definitely a talented guy, you know, and he talked about writing the Terminator, you know, the first Terminator script in his car, okay. He had no money, he had nothing. And, uh, and here we are in this palace of an office, which he's a little ashamed of, actually. Uh, somebody else did it for him. And um, all these things are around him, these things from... Uh, um, uh, alien and uh, you know like the uh, you know the the forklift kind of thing that you that a person stood in um, you know he had, he had the model of that and a model of the original Terminator you know in chromed metal on his desk and uh, you know these things are, are staring us in the face and we are in awe okay so um, T2 was uh, well we had heard that somebody uh, was producing a big display, you know, a dot matrix display, and that it would be perfect for pinball. And I started asking the guys, could this be put into a pinball machine? And they said, yes. So I wanted that in the game, and I wanted it to be, I wanted it to play a part in the game where the player got to play like a video game on the screen, too. That was from the very beginning, I wanted to do that, and I wanted best of all, to communicate to the player all the things that we wanted to say, okay, without really saying them, because the things we want to say through the speakers are different. They have to be entertaining. But if we want to dump data, information on the player, and get his attention, get him to look up at the dot matrix display, okay, this is a great, you know, venue of communication again. Uh, and so, uh, we, you know, well, T2 was... Uh, a lot of fun to do. Um, I was very happy with the kinetics of the game, the left-right, left-right ramp stuff. Uh, actually, Dwight came up with that rule. Dwight came up with many rules. Dwight was, uh, you know, he was just as much in love with the game as I was. And it sold uh, 15,252 machines, and I got the last one off the line. I made a point. I said, dudes, I want to get the last one, please. So how did the how did the vulgar ROMs come about? Those home ROMs. We never asked for them. He just you know, I he was like Arnold Schwarzenegger did the speech, and I I don't know if he was happy or sad, but the list was relatively short compared to today. Um, but you know, I I think he was actually kind of being a wise ass to the uh, to uh, I forget who was who was the sound man on this game. Oh, Chris Graner. He was a wise-ass to Chris Graner. Chris Graner was sitting on the outside coaching him, you know, and it's like, here's this intimidating dude. And he was a wise-ass then. And he said it himself. He said, fuck you, asshole, to Chris. He said it to him. And it's like, you know, he's, you know he had his middle finger up and everything. Chris didn't take it seriously. Um, this is how I remember it. And uh, we decided to offer that as an adult, you know, an adult edition of the game uh, to some people. We we really uh, um, at first it was very difficult to get, but then as more and more people got the game at home, they wanted this, so we let them have it. High Speed Two, uh, the Getaway, a great game. I mean, with amazing flow, that turbo thing. But it's uh, you know kind of like the Black Knight versus Black Knight Two Thousand thing. 
it's kind of a, a recycle of an older, th- older and very popular theme. It, it seems like that's you know you've been down that road before. Was it like you liked the sales results and the and the results, or what? What brought that about? People asked me to do it. Why? When are you going to make another high speed game? I, you know, when are you going to make another Black Knight game? You know, they asked me, uh, but it's like I, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore because it, it, you know. I guess someone always thinks I have an ulterior motive, but I really don't. You know, people if people loved High Speed, they look at High Speed 2, and, you know, it's like it's another story. Parts of it are the same, but the shots aren't the same at all, you know. Um, uh, you know, it has red, green, and yellow lights, and I... Uh, there is a cross shot, but it, it stays on the play field, unless the, the up-down ramp is up or down. You know, and it has this huge washing machine thing on it. You know, it's really not very similar to high speed, but I don't know. I got asked and sucked in, and I did it. And, and actually, it was uh, actually in both cases, well, all three cases, it wasn't a stupid thing to do. We we did pretty well. People ask you, are you saying that people in the industry ask you, or you get, like, fan mail? No, not fan mail. It's about, you know, well, sometimes. Sometimes that'll influence me. It's like... You know, enough guys say, why don't you do High Speed 2? Or, you know, pick up the story from where it left off and and go. So uh, Dwight had a lot to do with that, too. You know, he thought it was a good idea. And, and I did, too. And I also wanted, uh, you know, LaGrange in there. And now what about Star Trek Next Gen? How was that, uh, working with that theme, compared to, like, say, Terminator? Or I was lucky again. Not in the beginning, though. Term- uh, Star Trek... Star Trek The Next Generation, I went to get the license, okay? I told uh, Ken Fedesna and uh, uh, Neil Nicastro that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to try and get it, and they said, okay. So, um, you know, Roger Sharp and I and Dwight and, and Greg, I think, Greg Ferris, went to, uh, you know, Paramount Studios, uh, only to find that there are three women there, and... Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with women. I didn't want to make that sound like three women are unusual, but these were unusual women. They were uh, they were trying to protect the license to the point of, uh, well, we don't want any shooting in the game. No, no, you know, uh, we don't want you to fire phasers. You know, no violence, no photon torpedoes. And I'm going, wow, is that hypocritical? You know. And, and uh, the other guys, you know, on our team are, like, looking at me funny. But, you know, I did say that at a lunch, okay, in the uh, in the commissary at, uh, at, at, at Paramount. It's just, you know, they were asking me to back off on everything that makes the show really cool. Uh, they themselves did not know the prime directive where I grew up on Star Trek. I saw every episode. Of, of the old Star Trek and the new Star Trek, and I know how it works, and I wasn't about to violate, you know, the Prime Directive or anything else. They didn't even know about the Prime Directive themselves. You know, it's like, um, anyway, we, we got into trouble. I said, I, I can't make a namby-pamby game here. I need this. I, I need the ability to shoot when provoked, and Captain Picard would, you know, uh, would act a certain way, and that's I, I want to be true to that, and it's 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 a ridiculous to ask me not to. So um, the meeting did not go well uh, to start with. Uh, so that's the understatement of the year. 
it didn't go well at all. But uh, I, I wasn't about to just cave in and agree to them because it was worth so much more. And it was worth the chance, you know, to go ahead and uh, and try to get everything. So um, Roger Sharp, who is very much a diplomat, called them up the next day while we were we were up already uh, back in Chicago, and uh, and he said, "What can we do to salvage this?" And uh, you know, they were going to lose a, a substantial amount of licensing money, and we were going to lose a great theme. So they came around. These three girls, actually, a new girl headed up the thing. Her name was Susie Dominic, and she knew the show and was a smart lady and had, you know, uh, a much better rapport with us. And she was there. I guess she was their boss. And and then it became clear-cut that we could do that. We could shoot. We could use everything that was in the show as long as we obeyed the rules about the Prime Directive, and, and we did. We stuck to our word, and it was easy to do. I mean, to do anything else would not have been faithful to the show. It wouldn't have been correct. So... Uh, even if we wanted to make space pirates from fucking hell, okay, uh, uh, we wouldn't have done it because it wouldn't have been a popular thing to do. Um, anyway, uh, to me, Star Trek The Next Generation was um, the greatest co collaboration of talent, you know, on, on any game I ever did. What I mean by that is more good people, more uh, spectacularly talented people were involved in Star Trek than any other game I ever did. Um, uh, Greg Ferris did a fantastic package, you know, uh, for artwork. And uh, I'll tell you what, he's he's not just an artist. That guy's that guy's a brilliant script man. He's uh, he's also a damn good drummer and a musician. He he's a showman from the first day. He knows how to make people laugh. He's a comedian. He's uh, he's just a smart guy that you love to have on your team. He came up with lots and lots of stuff that you know he's just not gonna. You know, I mean, the scripting guys were myself, Dwight, Greg, and uh, and Dan Forden. But Dan, I don't think was, you know, he liked the show, but not as much as we did. We watched all of it, and we loved it. And, uh, you know, it's like um, just a great experience. Dan wrote, you know, seven or eight different tunes for the game. I didn't write anything for it. Um, but he wrote a tune for each mode, and everyone is good, and... I uh, I don't know. There's like thousands of speech calls to choose from, and uh, I loved all building up the little scenarios between, you know, Captain Picard and Geordi or or uh, you know, um, a warp or whatever. You know, it's just there. Were, you didn't just play the game; you played the show, and it felt like the show. And um, I had a lot of fun making the mechanicals. I the only thing I regret is the side drains, but as soon as I made the decision to uh, put the cannons on the slingshots, there was no way out after that. I loved where the shots were out of the cannon. I mean, they swept the whole game pretty much, which and, and they were in a position where they could make the shots angularly correctly. That's a weird thing to say, but it's, it's true. Um, unfortunately, the slingshots had to grow and I never could figure out how to make the drains bigger, but I, I didn't consider that it was going to be that big of a problem and not disliked, but it was disliked. But, in a way, Star Trek is kind of like, um, it's a very tough game to play and win. 
and if nothing else, it has a reputation for that. Good players can do very well. They just want to keep the ball away from the drain. How was your relationship with your brother? Where you're both in the pinball department, you're almost, you know, competitive teams, I guess, in some degree. I mean, did that cause any problems between you two? I don't think it caused a problem at all. And and he was there way before that. Um, he never left. Okay, he got in about 19. I'm trying to think of what his first game was. Thunderball, right? Yeah, with with a with a programmer that was very green and I don't know, not very gifted. Great guy though. Anyway, um, you get a fair shake on that. After that, I'm not sure what his next game. It might have been um, Firepower too. He called me up one day and said, "Can I make the two version of it?" And I go, "Sure." You know, I was already back in King Video and uh, uh, working on Devastator, so I said, "Yeah." Um, after that, I, I'm not sure what... I don't know what the chronology is. You know better, better than me, probably. But he had been there for a long time. Anyway, our relationship was good. The only thing I remember arguing with him about was, you know, <clears throat> I, uh, I had a street bike, and um, he talked to me one day, and he goes, you know what, I'm going to get a dirt bike. And I go... What are you going to get a dirt bike for? You know, I have a street bike. We could ride together. You, I can't believe you're doing this. Now you're going to get a dirt bike, you know. Um, anyway, we never did ride together much in the street, but I ended up getting a dirt bike also. I, I had had dirt bikes before. Anyway, that's what we argued about. We didn't argue about games. I used to do this to him, though. i got to tell you, it was funny as hell. Him and I would do it to each other. I'd go into his game. It would be, you know, Indiana Jones. And it actually played great, but I was thinking, what can I do to make fun of this? So I go, da 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 da. That's what I would do. <laughs> A mean, childish thing to do. You know, one day I'm to I'm totally involved in everything I'm doing on Star Trek, and he comes in, you know, and he's got. Ran or with him, I don't know, somebody else, and he goes, he goes, da da da, no, he didn't, he went, da, na na na, na na na, Developing no fear, I, I heard that, uh, vicious rumors, but I heard that you basically had kind of one foot out the door because you were going across the street to Midway to work on some driving games. Was that, you know, did that impact the, the No Fear game at all? It's not true at all. I, I didn't work on the driving games at Midway. And it was like, I, I wanted to make a driving game, but I, I didn't get to. I, you know, I, I was going across the street to Midway <clears throat> to see my friends because that's where they moved the whole video group. Um... It wasn't about uh, any kind of, you know, split thing. I, I did No Fear well before I left and produced um, California Speed at Atari again. No video game interference uh, with the development of No Fear at all. And how did you feel about No Fear and, and how, it, how it ultimately turned out? If you look at pinball and how many games were sold, you'll see a big tapering off starting with Twilight Zone about that sound um, and from that time you will see the games gradually you know the best you could do 
would sell a certain level. And uh, two years later, the best you could do would be less than that level. No matter what we made, it didn't matter. There were some good games there. They should have made, we should have sold many more, but we didn't because Pinwall was going through another negative period. Um, and as it turns out, it was the final one, the one that broke the straws, uh, the camel's back. So how did you get back into pinball and back to Stern? I mean, was that your idea or their idea? Kind of a mutual idea. I called Gary one day and I go, look, if I want to make a pinball machine, are you interested? And he goes, I don't know, maybe. He calls me back, you know, a month later or something, and he goes, yeah, yeah, come in and talk. So I went in and talked. Did that go easy, or did it go well? Yeah, I, I would say very well. We, you know, Gary's a good guy about about uh, that sort of stuff. It's like, I don't even think we have a written contract right now. We don't need one. If he says he's going to pay me, he's going to pay me. If I say I'm going to do a game, I'm going to do a game. No matter what. How did you feel about the licenses that you've gotten, um, you know, at Stern? You know, the Terminator, the Elvis, the World Poker, and Spider-Man. G3 I asked for, and it was probably a mistake. Arnold Schwarzenegger was too old to be the Terminator, but you can't really see it until you look at the movie, and of course you're done with the game by that time. Um, G3, I hadn't done a pinball machine in seven years. I'm not going to say that I... I hate it. I don't hate it. I like it, actually. I really like the game in the back box, but it required uh, a couple of posts, and I, I think still to this this day, some people have T3s operating with the cannon that doesn't swing through its whole stroke because these removable shipping posts were never taken out. Huh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I've never heard that before. The truth. I mean, when, you, when you read about people saying, oh, I have to bounce it off the floor to get the top target, crap like that. That means that the cannon isn't sweeping the full five targets, you know, vertically, which means that the posts are still in the in the back panel, and, you know, dummies didn't look at the, the material that we shipped with the game, or maybe the stuff got lost, they're the second owner, they don't know. It's like, so the posts probably are still in there. That was an unfortunate decision. And that's, that's something that I, I hated, because I said, put a rubber band around it. That way, if the game works, you know, it's fine. And uh, uh, it won't swing around while we're shipping it. And uh, we won't have to ask somebody to take posts around, you know. And the truth is, if the rubber band broke, it wouldn't have mattered. The game still would have raised and lowered the cannon because it worked off a gravity-fed cam. What about about Elvis? How did you feel about Elvis? Oh, I hated the theme at first. I just... I hated it. I, I didn't want to do Elvis. I didn't... It's not Steve Ritchie. It's not a, you know... It doesn't... There's no... I don't know. In the end, I did see that Elvis had marketing power. And and I decided to do it because the alternatives... The alternative games did not have the marketing power of Elvis. And as it turns out, it was a very good decision. We've sold a lot of them. I mean, they, he's built... Uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I hesitate to say how many, but we've gone back to build them every Christmas since. And, um, you know, there's been some nice runs of Elvis. I'm a happy guy. So on World Poker Tour, they called me in the office and told me over and over again that I need to make this game for them. 
and I resisted heavily. And they yelled at me some more. And, and Ray worked on me, and uh, the, the final uh, the final thing was Mike O'Donnell and Gary Gary Stern both screaming in my face, "You have to do it." Well, I could see that I wasn't going to get the gig. And at that point, I was not prepared not to get the gig. I could have made a redemption game, but it would have been cool to start it six months before if I had known this was going to happen. So I kind of had to say, yeah. If I wanted to uh, make a game at Stern, I kind of had to say, yeah, if I was going to continue to have an income. But I hated it from the first moment. I want to make that clear. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, I have no remorse, nor do I feel the slightest bit of guilt, okay? Nor do I feel that it is inferior in any way in terms of the play field design. Hmm. I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. It's fun as hell to bat around the ball in the upper play field. It's the best little play field that ever was, I would say, until Pat did Family Guy. And I think that play field's nicer, no doubt. Uh, well, of course it is. It's much bigger. He used a small ball. It's it's much more detailed because it can be. I I continue to use the same size ball, which means everything is bigger. Can't put as much stuff on it. And um, you know, uh, the real estate used was um, I don't know. Pretty clever. I I don't block a view of anything. You don't lose a damn thing on World Poker Tour, even though there's a second level. You do lose some territory on Black Knight, Black Knight 2000, okay? Any two-level level game, you know, you sacrifice some space on the bottom play field to have an upper play field. Now let's uh, talk about Spider-Man, which was like, the obviously this was a license that you probably went after, right? Yeah, uh, after World Poker Tour... And and what happened? I was kind of like, I don't give a I don't give a damn what happens. I want to do Spider-Man, or I don't want to do anything. And um, you know, not in pinball. I would go back to Redemption games. And and Gary said, okay, great, we're gonna get Spider-Man. Up to that point, Gary thought that Spider-Man was too juvenile, along with Harry Potter. And we were telling him, hey, dude, there's been two movies. Everybody's seeing it. Everybody loves it. For God's sakes, both movies are in the all-time box office top ten. He finally sees the light, and he says, okay. Also, I think he realizes that when you make somebody do something they don't want to, okay, make them design a pinball machine that their heart is not in, it's a bad thing. Huh. Bad all the way around. So on Spider-Man... Was there anything? I know that the game isn't out in at, at this time, and you probably can't talk a lot about it. But what can you say about the game at this point? I love it. I love the game. I think I think most people are going to love it because it has a very elegant set of rules. We've uh, find all the shots to be smooth and and flow everywhere. It's, it's totally back to flow. I. Uh, you know, I was kind of bummed out when people didn't didn't really like World Poker Tour stops, and we did make too many. And it's funny, Pat could get away. Pat Waller could get away with making that many stops and more, but if I do it, I'm not allowed to. So 
because I'm the king of flow, I guess, you know, that's what they say. Anyway, but those people that say that are right, I, uh, you know, I, part of my art is to make a nice kinetic package where the ball flows around the game, where it's fun to play, when you know it's coming back, this is, you know, a Steve game, and it's going to it's gonna do this, I know it's going to do this, and it does do it, as well as a lot of new things that I haven't done before, and um, it just turned out really nice. It's it's fun working with Lyman. It's uh, a very good experience. Just as just as good as working with Eugene. We got along very well. He's like a you know a give and take kind of guy. Where we you know I don't know. The relationship was totally synergistic. That's it. I uh, we didn't argue about anything. He's if I say something, he, he listens carefully and thinks about it and and makes a decision based on what will make the game better instead of being stubborn about our egos or something that we like or something that, you know, that we made. And so it can't be bad, can it? Yes, it can be bad. Yes, we all make bad things. And, uh, you know, a smart man takes out his bad work and leaves all his good work in. And sometimes it takes another smart man to come by and say, dude, you got to dump this or dude, this is great. Why don't you try this? Oh, are you giving me that idea? Yes, I am. My friend, I will take that idea, and thank you very much. Huh. That's what making a great pinball machine is about. Having an open mind, being willing to accept ideas from other people. Uh, you know, if they're good, they go in the game. If they're bad, they don't. And um, I kind of do reserve the right to make that decision on my games, but... I also, I mean, if it's somebody like Lyman, Eugene, Larry Damar, a few other people, you know, where where I really respect, you know, everything they've done uh, and also respect their intelligence, uh, respect their insights, they probably have something to say to me that's important. If they're going to bring it up, I probably have a problem with whatever it is. And the same with me. If I tell Eugene or, or Lyman, hey, I'm not getting extra ball, dude. You're the best pinball player in the world, and he is. You know, the only reason he's not the best pinball on the player in the world this year is because he didn't play because he worked on Spider-Man. He is the baddest pinball player of all time, I think. Anyway, if I'm having a hard time getting extra ball, and I tell him, look, I'm not getting extra ball, and I'm just an average player, maybe a little better than average. You know, he pays attention to me, and he says, yeah, well, if you're not getting it, then really bad players aren't going to get it. That's not a very nice compliment to me, but it is the truth. I don't, I don't <laughs> fool myself about things like that. On Spider-Man, are you using LEDs now for all the computer-controlled lights or any of the lighting instead of you know the normal fifty-five-five-fives or number forty-seven lights? It was a consideration early on in the game, but it turned out to be way too expensive for us to do that, and. Uh, you know, in order for Stern to keep keep on keeping on, we have to be profitable. Um, I don't want to be the guy that, you know, that causes us to be $200 over the bill materials or, you know, I don't want to make a game that's responsible for laying off a bunch of people or not having the company function at all. I try to cooperate with people. Once in a while, you get involved in a group of guys that, you know, just want to cut it to the bone. It happened in Bally. Bally 
told everybody, take $100 out of the game. And uh, they struggled, but they did take $100 out of every pinball machine they made. Then management came back and said, take out another $100. And Valley was dead, and we bought them about nine months after that happened. Hmm. Take away the fun. You're not going to sell games. You're not going to sell games that aren't fun. Players aren't stupid. And uh, there's a level where you have to, you know, you have to stay. And uh, it's a fine line. I heard that every couple years you have like a major house cleaning where you back a dumpster up to your office and just throw out all your, you know, old drawings and old knickknacks and old pinball paraphernalia and that people just go nuts. They want to go dumpster diving after all your all the stuff that you're discarding. Is that is that is that true? Do those stories really true? Yep, they're true. Uh, every year or not. You know, I mean, it's actually every game, however long a game takes, okay? When, when we're working on games, most of us are slobs. I, in fact, all of us are. I'm thinking of Dennis Nordman's office or, or uh, John Trudeau or Barry Osler, uh, Colonel Nutsy. You know who Colonel Nutsy is? That was an internal name for Tony Kramer. Huh. Um, anyway, uh... Yeah, my office was a mess while I was making a game. Uh, everybody's was. And and so after a year, or however long the game takes, you know, it just piles up. Pretty soon you get pissed off, and yes, we just threw away everything. It didn't mean anything to us. What do we care? We just moved on. It was probably like some pretty cool stuff. I mean, as far as collectors go, I try not to do that anymore. Excuse me. I try to keep the stuff that I can. Um, then a lot of it doesn't belong to me. You know, like, there aren't any Whitewoods of Stern, uh, Stern games. They, they, you know what they do? They strip all the parts off of them. Put them back in a bin and we build, build the game again. Um, yes, it's true, Clay. I also heard that you, unlike a lot of other designers, you spend a lot of time on the production floor watching your game be assembled and making sure that all the, you know, the small details are watched. Is that also true? Yeah, it's true. I probably do that more than any other game designer ever did. I, I don't mind doing it if I've got the time. Usually, well, after you're done with a pinball machine, it's on the line. You've got good earnings reports. People are generally happy. Uh, you got some kind of sales in the second or third week. You know what you have after the game's been released. And if it's good, they didn't give a damn what I did, okay? They weren't harping at me to make the next game. They just wouldn't give a damn. So all along, I would look at it, but I, I try to always remain friendly. Well, this goes for all people on Earth, okay? I try to be friendly, and I try to be respectful. Um... And so when I go to the line, I, I speak to everyone, I talk to them, they are my friends. Maybe not close friends, but they're my friends. I, I make friends with them. I don't give them any reason to hate me. I, I don't give them any reason to, to uh, you know, I'm just a human being like they are. That's it right there. And I think a lot of people on the line just need to, uh, to know that, 
know, it's not the best job on earth, you know, being an assembler. I used to feel sorry for people because they have to do the same job all day long, over and over again. But, you know, after a while, things changed in manufacturing. They started moving people around so they didn't get so bored. Anyway, I would stay after them. I liked the people. I ended up making friends with the foreman, with the guys on the line. And I had a nice rapport with them, and if I asked them for something, they would give it to me. If I asked them, please put a little bit of lubric, you know, uh, lubric plate grease, just a tiny dot put on with a, with, a, with a toothpick, and I would show them on each end of the spinner and then move it back and forth so the whole wire is greased. So whenever it spins, it spins nice, and you get ten more spins, ten more revolutions out of a spinner that was greased versus one that was dry. Um... So I, I liked that. I enjoyed, you know, I still do. I still go out on the line now, uh, only I didn't have much of a chance on, on uh, Spider-Man. The game really didn't go into production until after I had left. The first game came off the line last Friday, and I was already gone on Thursday. Well, is there anything that I've left out or that you want to add in, you know, in any regard, including on Spider-Man? Uh, nothing that I don't want to say for uh, Jim at Pin Game Journal. I've been, uh, you know, working on a chronological story on Spider-Man, and you're not getting that. He's getting it. There's three hours of talk on Spider-Man, and we can have that, that talk sometime. <laughs> All right, Steve. Well, I really, I'm going to let you go to bed. I really do appreciate your time and, uh, and your energy in this. This was great. You spent a lot of time with me. I really, really appreciate it a lot. Well, if you make any money from this, okay, would you share it with me, please? I don't get a nickel out of this. There isn't going to be any money made, is there? No, sorry. I, I'm, I'm really, really sorry about that. I was just joking. I knew there was no money involved. <laughs> All right, man. It was fun, Clay. Thank you again, and, and take care. Good night. Again, I would like to thank Steve Ritchie for joining us tonight on TopCast. It was truly an honor to talk to him about his history in pinball and all his uh, amazing sales records in, in the games that he is, has made. They are true, true pinball classics. Again, thank you, Steve, and uh, good night from TopCast. <laughs>